Hey everyone, welcome to An Event for Life with Brad Cox and Shane Buzzer. I'm Brad. And I'm Shane. An Event for Life is the podcast where we take you on a journey through eventful lives of inspirational event industry leaders from around the world. That's right. We'll be sharing their stories, impact and insight into the complex world of events. So if you like these stories, don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your mates. This is An Event for Life. Hello, Buzz. How are you, mate? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, very, very well. It's a way. We're back, back to afternoons. Back to afternoons. I know you've just run in. Like you literally sprinted up the stairs and, and joined us. You've obviously been out and about this morning. That's why I've got the water next to me, just to get my breath. And yep. yeah, Let's be honest, you did offer the beer around, but we've decided to keep it clean for now. Well, only because our guest knocked, knocked it back. But that, He's you know, off we'll, to we'll the gym. To yeah. he's, he's, I'm going to hold him to that when we get to it, so let's <laughs> let's not quite go there yet. How are you doing now? you good? Yeah, it's been a, it's been busy. So it's I mean, good. we say that every week, don't we? So oh, it's busy, it's busy, it's busy. Yeah. But there's a fair bit going on at the moment in the event industry. So well, there's a lot happening at Flemington as we speak, getting ready for uh, what's going to be a huge week ahead. Yes, uh, one of the biggest weeks of the year. So yeah, we're re- we're recording this just as we go into spring racing carnival. So yeah, uh, you look like you're up and about and ready to go. Oh, look, I don't mind the ra- going to the races. Any, <laughs> anyone who knows me knows yeah. it's a, a great time of year. So what about, are you going to go 20? No, I'm, I'm actually going away. It's a long weekend here in Melbourne, so we get a, oh, a nice right. little long weekend. So I'm going camping with the family uh, up into the Grampians National Park. So okay. do a bit of uh, exercise and get away and some fresh air, So, uh, which is good. But uh, it's been a pretty busy busy period. So, you know, lots of change in sort of the the global economy and how that's impacting the event industry and uh, lots of change there at the moment. So don't know about yourself, but um, I know certainly for, for me, it's been an interesting period of time. And I'm, I'm very keen to talk to today's guest about all this and the change from sort of the COVID boom that's sort of from reconnecting is starting to slow down and we're seeing a focus starting to shift back to the bottom line and the numbers yeah. driving events. Um, you know, and we're so, sort of starting to see that, you know, remodel of, uh, of revenue streams for events and uh, the way things have been done. It's and reined in, isn't it? It has started extent. to rein yeah. in, yeah. So, you know, there's a bit of a downturn in commercial sponsorship and promoter funds and, you know, a reduction in how much corporations are spending on marketing and development for their team and so, you know, and, and public discretionary spend. So, and all that's starting to have an impact on, on what we do. Um, but uh, so it's about looking at new opportunities and new ways to do things and, always goes through a bit of a cycle I feel like yeah, you know sort of every five to ten years and you know there's always good bits in there as well and just a bit of a refocus so you know we're still seeing a lot in sort of the education sector and major events are still firing and um you know government sectors and uh you know where they're supporting and you know grassroots and sustainable say, events gr- and stuff. you know the grants have maybe uh scaled down a bit so um yeah I think they just yeah. changed focus too a bit they're probably, you know, probably fair enough I think really, uh, yeah to some extent yeah. absolutely so you know a lot in that grassroots space and sustainable events yeah. so I think there's a there's a real sort of demand for that at the moment so and community as well so yeah it'd be interesting to see uh, how the next 12 months plans out. So, yeah, so I'm spending a lot of time sort of working out ways to optimise balance and providing value for attendees and, you know, the experience and what that looks like these days for, for different events and clients and uh, and how it impacts their businesses. So, yep. um, so yeah, it's a it's an interesting that's, time. That's your jam. You love the whole strategy I do love thing. It. I, I mean, I, I could... just get shit done. I don't think about it just... Bang, but no, you love it. Well, I do love it. And <laughs> look, today's guest is uh, is a bit the same. So, you know, and the economy is a great segue into him. Uh, he's he's transitioned from an established career in finance uh, for large banks and institutions to now being one of the most prominent MCs, facilitators and hosts. 
His strategic approach uh, and in-depth understanding of business uh, enables his methodical and detail uh, level to his craft. With a love of motorsport and business, would you please welcome uh, the ever-present Luke Hannon. Hello, mate. What's up? How are you guys? It's uh, great to great to be here. Great to be in the new premises as well. I uh, I'm liking the way it's shaping up. Do the viewers know this is new? That's the question. Kind of. We've touched on it recently okay. that it is. We're in the you know an eventful live studio, which we're we're calling it, which you know, it's great. You know, we've now got a lot more autonomy and can be a bit more flexible when we bring people in. But thanks for those comments. And as soon as you walked in, well, as soon as I ran upstairs, by the way. <laughs> I felt your presence. You were just bang. Hey, how are you? What's happening? Well, mate, he's in, a, he's in a suit and a shirt, so nearly spring racing carnival ready yourself. So you've been busy this morning. So whereas we're sitting here in our, in our casuals as we do, but uh, we like to be comfy. But you're obviously comfy in a suit as well. Absolutely. A couple of decades in banking and finance will tend to, tend to do that. It's interesting you mentioned about the suit. These are kind of my go-to clothes. Like I'm really, really comfortable. I get home from work and the missus is like, what are you doing? Get undressed. And I'm like, yeah, but... Like this is my jam. Or out of them as well. I mean, we can go there if you like. I think we've got a long uh, long journey today. Uh, together. This, this is going to be an interesting hour, isn't okay, it? We're straight out the gate quickly here. Hey, let's jump to um, straight into the obvious question. You're originally a professional in the banking and finance world, like uh, we just mentioned earlier, through a variety of different roles, and you're now emceeing some of the country's largest events. Why the shift? Why the shift? It's It's a great question. I started in banking and finance 22 years ago in debt collection and I originally did customer service. So let's take a bit of a journey through the career. Customer service, then telemarketing. The cool thing about debt collection is that it's like telemarketing but the person on the other end can't say no. <laughs> Probably, well, yeah. They, they can but you can always call back. I guess the misunderstood thing about collections is that when you, when you hear the word collections, and for our listeners, you'll hear collections and I suspect a lot of you envision baseball bats and forcefulness and quite aggressive conversations, but it's actually quite the opposite. The you're, magic of good you're, collections. You're in Brunswick, so generally that is how things are handled <laughs> yeah. out in this area. Yeah. It's actually about listening and it's really about empathising and connecting with your customers. And actually I was in training this morning doing some communication coaching and someone asked me, like, how do you – how did you become who you are? Where did you get all these smooth statements from and these transitional comments that you'll make as an MC to keep the flow going? And I liken it to Slumdog oh, Millionaire yeah. where every time he gets a question, it kind of relates to a specific part of his life. And for me, when I look back now as a professional MC, it all makes sense, but it sort of only makes sense in hindsight. And I guess what I mean by that is the collections helped me to become a good listener and empathise and learn how to control conversations because sometimes as a moderator or when you're doing a panel discussion or interviewing someone, you sort of need to do that. Then I moved into risk management, which was coding and learning SAS, and which is a coding language, and then portfolio management. I did an MBA. This is 15, 16 years into my career and that sort of related to being an MC. The catalyst, the moment, and then I'll pivot and we'll, we'll come back, the pivot was, it was March 2018, I was doing a leadership course. I was managing a team of risk managers at Westpac. So we were managing the credit card portfolio, setting rules for who to lend to, who not to lend to, how much and so on. And I did a leadership course with a guy, his name's Andy Fell, who's now my coach. And Andy said to me at about afternoon tea, he goes, mate, he goes, what are you doing in risk? And I'm like, I don't really know. Like, I love my job. However, it's just not for me. And I think the viewers might 
relate. You do what you do. You love it. It's a privilege to have a job, but it's kind of not your ikigai. It's not your passion. So I, I left that day thinking, man, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but it's going to be awesome, whatever it is. And then Thursday the 10th of May, I'm hosting it. Thursday the 10th of May 2018, this is, I'm doing a charity gig at Westpac. It's the third or the fourth year I'd hosted it as an MC. I'm not a professional MC at this stage. I'm just a risk manager who likes talking on a stage. And as clear as I'm talking to you guys now, the thought came into my head, this is it. This is it, those three words. And I was like, wow, what, this is what I'm supposed to do. So that weekend I registered a business name, started to build a website, went out to people I'd volunteered for, did events for, got testimonials, got photos, and then I, I, I was a management associate, which is like a graduate at City for two years. I was really good at networking and just started hustling like as a self-employed person. And I did both for quite a while. I was going to say it would have been a transitional period, Huge. surely. Yeah. Five years. Five wow. years. I left Westpac this year, so 2023 in April. Oh, wow. And by that stage, I delivered over 400 events as a professional MC. And so I guess that that March uh, March and May 2018 was the moment. But then after that, it was just a grind and it was growth. And it got to the point where my manager said, look, you're taking 12 weeks purchase leave a year to do all these events. You've got to go out on your own. Not because we don't want you here, but because I, as your leader, who cares about you as an individual, can see better things for you. And imagine that. That's pretty scary, right? Stepping away from a 22-year career in banking finance. I've got three kids, a wife, yeah. a mortgage. What is that process like and how did you go about considering that? Talking to the wife and the family considerations and stepping into somewhat of an unknown world, even though you'd done so much of it. I was going to say after five years, just I guess further to Brad's question, did that make it a bit easier, the fact that it had been an ongoing process for five years? Oh, sorry, answer Brad's question, but also I guess is that part of Yeah, the yeah. There's a couple of questions in there. To, to, to yours, Brad, I fundamentally believe this is what I'm supposed to do in life. We were chatting before we came yeah. on air. And for me it's my ikigai, my Japanese concept of ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I, I think so you spell it. And it's the intersection of what the world needs, what you're good at, what you love doing and what you can get paid for. And in the middle of that is your true purpose. And I look back in hindsight and, I mean, when I was eight years old, 1989 this is, I played footy and played's a loose term what I did. And that <laughs> rugby league footy, um, not footy footy, AFL footy. And we'll talk the, about that later. Yeah. yeah we'll touch on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I'm just trying to hang grenade. Ooh, the, yeah. You should the have tension. said the looks just changed. <laughs> the tension just grew. But my coach wrote in the yearbook when we found out, and I've still got it to this day, when we found out that Luke's mouth, Luke's legs went as fast as his mouth, we knew I had a great hooker on our hands, right? And so I'd always love speaking. I'd always love being the centre of the tension, the centre of attention. I think as you get older, you realise if someone's going to bestow a portion of their life upon you, do something with it. Now, this gets back to your question. So I knew this is what I'm supposed to do in life. Like I love being on stage. Every time I walk up those stairs, it's like Christmas morning. I don't get nervous at all. I get nervous around things like how am I going to control this audience or what if this happens or what if that happens? But it's not nervous about the attention because I absolutely love it. So I knew it was for me and to the answer to your question is I just knew I had to pull the pin. I'd kind of fallen out of love with banking after 22 years and so I said to my wife, let's do this. My coach also said, and I think we as professionals, we, we often underestimate ourselves and our ability to do things. And I said to my coach Andy, I go, mate, like, I'm going to make this transition. He did the same thing. And he goes, mate, with your CV, you could rock into a, any institution doing anything and get a job, right? And you often forget that when when you're sort of stuck at the coalface. It's not often we get to that 30,000-foot view to look down on life sort of thing. So, yeah, that helped. Do you, do you think like this is such a unique story and 
Brad, you and I have worked with so many MCs over the years. I've never heard anything like this in the context of how they became an MC and, and you know, prominent in that role. This, this, well, to me anyway, I'm not sure if you've heard anything yeah, I'd, I would say the common denominator in that, and this is a bit of a generalised statement, is most MCs come from a a world of entertainment. So it might be TV, yeah. film, uh, stage-based entertainment. So I think where you're different, Luke, is you, you come out of that corporate space and particularly the strategic corporate space, so we're thinking about it differently. Mm. I think why it resonates now though is because that's how we're now thinking about our events. They're not just entertainment purposes. They have much more meaning and derivative. So we need your skills, your knowledge, your passion to be able to drive those forward. And, and I think that's where you can really find find your spot in your, and you have done and, and why you're so valued in the industry now. I guess you're probably also able to absorb the information that you're given mm. quite well mm. also. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you touch on something really interesting and my style as an MC is really thought-provoking. Like I mentioned before, if if the audience is going to bestow upon me a portion of their life, and let's face it, if I'm hosting a conference for a 1,000 people and I've got 10 minutes at the start, that's 10,000 minutes of life that I've got, 1,000 times 10, right? Yep. Now I could crack jokes, I could try and entertain them, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. However, the style I choose is to connect them with the cause of the conference and to try and make them think differently about something. And I find for me at least that then earns their respect because they know that whatever's coming out of this person's mouth is going to be interesting and it's going to make me think differently. Now, there's a fine line because as the MC, it's not about me. My role is to bring the audience on a journey, keep them at a certain level of engagement throughout the event and then make sure each speaker is given the floor with a sort of reasonable level of consistency. So moving from event to event, client to client, how do you go about doing that to make sure you stand out? Yeah, good question. I do a range of events. So my business is was originally a couple of pillars. The first is sporting events because I did a lot of uh, triathlon and running. The second is corporate events. Now the approach to those is very, very different because at a sporting event, I don't really have people's attention. I'm trying to, uh, except at the start of the race yep. where I get to get everyone to like clap their hands and stuff like that. When I'm doing announcements on the mic throughout the day, I'm sort of background noise. But at a conference, I've got their undivided attention and the stakes are a lot higher. So the magic is in the prep work. My prep work is working with the clients to say, what's your why? Like, why are you doing this event? And more importantly, what do you want out of your MC? Because some people will say, we've got this event, it's awesome. We just need someone like a comedian to, to crack jokes. And I'll always crack a joke if it's the right thing to do, but I'm no comedian. There are so many amazing... <laughs> so are we talking dad jokes? Is that what you're throwing in now? Yeah, test them on the, on the <laughs> sun before you arrive. <laughs> I, I had a guy once, oh, I don't know if it was a guy, I had a, a delegate once that asked, and here's an example of kind of jokes. I had a delegate ask me at a conference, 1,200 people, and the vendor was pitching about an amazing product, I'm sure, and someone asked in the Q&A, is this compatible with Lotus Notes? And this is only a few <laughs> years ago, right? And so you just got to go with your gut. And for me it was like, you know, show of hands, who uses Lotus Notes? Crickets. Yep. And I'm like, all right, strap yourself in. And I went to town on Lotus Notes because the audience was loving it. They give you feedback. And, yeah, so we joked and for a couple of minutes throughout that. Everyone had a good time, reset the audience, and then moved on. But it's never in the script. It's never in the script. When I coach people on public speaking, they always like, well, shouldn't I do an icebreaker and crack a joke? And my opinion is you have, especially in today's day and age, such a finite period of time to capture the audience's attention with what it is that you're going to say if you're not a paid comedian, 
then I'd highly recommend considering the risk-reward ratio of cracking a joke. Because in life, and this is my risk background coming through, you can't generally get a reward without taking risk. But you can take risk for little or no reward. And popping a joke at the start of your keynote just to try and break the ice, I've seen it bomb. Oh, yeah. Full oh. flatness face. Oh, oh, oh. I was going to say, you've you got to play to your strengths, right? And as you say, yeah. if, if you're not a comedian, if that's not your mm. jam, then just stick to what you're good at and you can still be warm and, and you know, really engaging with the audience yeah. without having yeah. to feel that you've got to make everyone piss themselves laugh at the start. So, 100%. And I mean, I let that gig go. I said, I can refer you to a number of comedians who are amazing at what they do and are great MCs as well. This is the person you need for your event. And this gets back to your question around how do I prepare for events? The first thing to do is to make sure that what you have is what they want. And quite often people don't know what they want, the whole Henry Ford faster horses thing. But what I hear most is, you know, what did you like about your last MC? And they're like, well, he did this or they did that or they did this. What didn't you like? Well, they're a bit of a degrade celebrity and crack stupid jokes and took the mickey out of our CEO. And I'm like, right, well, I'm the right guy for your job because that's not my jam. You mm. know, I'm here to bring your audience on a journey. And, and Brad, Brad alluded before around how a, a lot of MCs do come from the entertainment world and, and, and have that reputation. So um, for you coming at it from a different angle, were you able to kind of generate more corporate leads from your, your you know, your experience in the bank world or how did that all eventuate and evolve? When I first started out, I knew that my background at the time, 17 years in banking and finance, MBA, and in my career, I've presented to APRA, the Prudential Regulator, to ASIC, to CEOs, to boards, to executive teams. So I can connect with a CEO on a stage that an entertainer can't. They might be great behind a microphone. However, I felt that was a competitive advantage that I had that they didn't. And I'm no disrespect to any of our entertainers out there because they're amazing. But what that meant is I knew that my way into the industry was let's look at financial style events. But I wanted to branch out. And so I had to be really careful not just to become the finance guy. Yeah. And that's your comfort area. So you can get up on stage or be in a room and you go, I know this subject really well. And I mean, I can speak from this from experience from the event side of things as well. And what I do that, you know, day to day now, it's it's very similar. It's if I've got an, an event related event, if that makes sense, an industry-related one, it's very easy to walk in and go, I know this back to front, you know, throw whatever you want at me, I'm comfortable. If you walk into a space that's not particularly right in your sweet spot, you do have to think a bit more laterally and and push yourselves out of boundary, take a little bit more risk um, to your point to make sure that, you know, you do resonate and come down to research and pr- preparation. That's exactly right. Last week I was in Singapore for uh, ASEAN financial event. Now I'm extremely familiar with the Australian financial services industry but in terms of Singapore, I'm not. So there's a lot of pre-work that goes in to work out what's MAS, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. What are they doing? What are the current affairs in Hong Kong, in Southeast Asia? And then I did a government event back to back. Now, government is another gamut. I've done plenty of government now. But the magic there is in the prep. It always is in the prep. My run sheet for a one-day conference is probably 30 to 35 pages long. And that's everything I'm going to say. Absolutely everything. How much do you rely on the event manager, event producer to provide that information to you? And how much do you do yourself? Yeah, good question. I will build a run sheet based on an agenda. If it's got a descriptive session introduction and some bullet points, I can understand what the speaker is going to talk about. And you're always tapping them on the shoulder going, mate, is this still current? The magic is flexibility as well. I find myself to be, I hope, extremely flexible in that I'll have a speaker that comes up to me and goes, now I know I'm coming from bank XYZ and this is what I was going to talk about, bank XYZ's transformation. However, Bank XYZ just said, you can't mention Bank XYZ. So our whole session's gone. And this happens to me minutes before we go on stage. And I'm like, mate, well, that's fine. You're a senior leader. Let me write down half a dozen questions and we'll just have a yarn on stage. And I think I'm at my most comfortable 
when it's unstructured conversation like that. So what do you do when uh, an event producer or uh, an event coordinator comes to you with a scripted, a full scripted, script. yeah, <laughs> full scripted MC notes? What's your reaction to that? Yeah, that's fine as well. That's fine as well. I always say to them, are you okay if I put these in my own words? Yeah. And then if, if you've got a PCO and there are many out there that love going above and beyond, bring it on. I love that because that's my approach as well. So we're quite aligned in terms of prep work. But I do always say that this is great. I'm going to pull these key themes out. I'm going to put it in my own words because I have a style in which that I speak. Andrew Klein, who's another amazing yep, MC and a bit of a mentor, right? absolute champion, right, and probably the best, I'd have to say, conference MC. Like I aspire to be as good as him one day. He's got his own style. Funny story in Andrew. So we were kind of in a similar boat where he was a lawyer for 20 years and then left to be an MC. So as soon as I sort of decided to follow the dream back in 2018, I pinged him a note on LinkedIn. I'm like, hey, mate, like, thanks so much. Like, he showed me this is possible. He has been the most amazing guiding star mentor, so open and honest. And we've had so many detailed conversations for hours. Like, we went for coffee earlier this year and spent like four hours at a cafe just talking. So people like that, and this is a bit of a sidetrack, when you want to transition, just know that it is very unlikely you are the first. And that's okay. But what it does mean is that there are so many amazing people that have lit the proverbial path before you. Find out who they are. Drop them a note, shout them a coffee, 99 people out of 100 are supremely confident in their own ability, aren't threatened by you, and are going to take you on that journey. And Andrew is a great example of that. And back on how we got onto him, his style's slightly different to mine. So his law background, his vocabulary is spectacular, and he uses it with such flexibility and such accuracy. And But that's not me. I don't have that vocabulary. I don't have that legal background. So my style's sort of different. But we all have our own styles and that, that shapes us who we are. And is that part of what makes you, mm. I guess, uh, you know, I was going to say what makes you stand out and is that what makes you stand out that you have your own style and that you have that background in, in the financial world? Is that one of the things that helps? It was at the start. However, I've worked really hard to try and use that as a foundation to build experience and a profile and generate enough revenue to then step away from banking but it's been quite a conscious effort to do more in health, do more in construction, in mining, in sport, to branch out so that you become the MC that can do everything. And clearly that's a lot more work for me as an individual in terms of prep work, but it's worth it. I was going to say it'd be much more beneficial and provide a lot more options for you, especially now that you've jumped out of that world and uh, you are now a full-time MC. Exactly. Have you ever had a situation where you haven't agreed with what's been written in, say, script or notes or questions that you've had to adapt to? I fundamentally believe if you do the Stephen Covey and that is seek first to understand, then to be understood, like help me understand, Buzz, where are you coming from when you want this? Like what is it What is it you're actually looking for? Because quite often people ask you for something and they've got an idea of the end game but they give you the method as well as the end game and if you suggest alternate methods that achieve that same end game, they're really, really well. And sometimes the clients are like, look, I really just need you to, a, to, to stick to the script or to say these things. And I'm like, yeah, but I can use my own words within reason, right? And they're like, yeah, that's fine. And generally what happens is when I start speaking and they realize that this person isn't just a fly-by-nighter who needs my script and he's just going to read it like a robot, who is passionate, who really is vested in the success of the event, not just on the day but before the event, looking after the sponsors, making sure the delegates are happy, I tend to get a bit more latitude because they understand that I'm not just someone who's going to rock up and read a script that's been given. I'm sort of part of the event family, which is why most of the clients I've got, I've been working with for a number of years, 
for a number of years. The, I did a conference last week in Brisbane. That was the fifth year since ninety, uh, since two thousand and nineteen that I'd worked with them. Another company for six years, and that's like two thousand and eight. So we started in eighteen, rather two thousand eighteen. It's 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 good, and I guess it's easy as an MC, easier than a keynote speaker in that I can keep the same client every year because I'm the consistency. But you'd have to change it up surely in some way. I mean, I know I don't know about you, Brad, but I wouldn't want to roll out the same product year on year. I mean, I'm happy to have the same people involved, but you've got to mix it up a bit. You've got to have some point of difference. Or, or are you fine? Is this particular client fine with the same product to some degree? If you define the product as me, what I'm saying is totally different. Okay. My, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my intros are bespoke per event. So it takes me two or three days to put them all together. That's individually written for each event and it changes every year because current affairs change course, in every industry. Yeah, yeah. So it's based on that. So whilst if you define the half the product as being the individual, clearly that's consistent, but what I'm saying changes every time. And I think this gets back to your question as well, Brad, around how do you deal with different styles of events? The approach, the run sheet is bespoke for each of those and it's customised based on the themes of the event, based on what they want the audience to take away. So that's always different. And again, I think coming back to the audience piece too, some audiences and some clients like having the familiarity of the same MC or same host. So that they become part of the event, part of that product. They know that if they go to that mm. conference, I am going to get this MC, but you know, that's the challenge for you in your role and, and what you do to, to make sure that it is bespoke and different each time for the, you know, whether it's the same audience or a different group of people. In terms of demographics and, and particular you know, the difference between sort of emceeing a larger event to facilitating smaller groups and roundtable discussions. Do you approach those very differently as well? It's totally different. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is night and day. There's a massive difference between being a conference MC and being a roundtable moderator. They're both very unique skill sets. It's almost like one is a 100-metre dash and the other one is a marathon. Yep. They're, both, they're both running events and they both involve running shoes, but even the shoes are different. Like the shoes that a marathon runner wears is totally different to to the shoes that a sprinter wears. Now I wear the same shoes to a conference. Say, wait, yeah. You do wearing different shoes? No. Maybe <laughs> yeah. the same. Well, I tend to put the spikes on for the round tables. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a little, little heated, the elbows come out. Yeah, and my clothes are a bit tighter in the yeah. round tables, like a hundred meter sprinter, because yeah. because I need the, the the wind resistance. But in all seriousness, it is a totally different proposition. A roundtable is sort of like a panel discussion, but imagine 20 panellists and you've got about two hours of, of conversation and it's a very, very, very different, different mindset. The magic in a roundtable, much like a panel, is to try and get the panellists or the roundtable attendees talking amongst themselves. However, there's a lot more work that goes into the background into unpacking the client's needs. I was just about to ask, what's your preparation difference between the two like? Yeah, great question. So for, for a panel, I'll generally go in with half a dozen questions for a panel of four for about half an hour. But I'd probably ask 13 or 14 because most of them just come up as much as we're doing right now. For a roundtable, they tend to be broken up into themes because the client, let's say, for example, I've got a bottle of Mount Franklin water here, right? If, if Mount Franklin's running a roundtable, they might want to talk about their new supply chain. And so the audience is going to be very much strategic procurement. Whereas if they're talking about their new flavour of water, then it's probably not going to be procurement. It's probably going to be marketing or someone who's in sales who's going to purchase it. And, and I know procurement is, is purchasing, but slightly different, right, customer experience. And so we work with them to understand, like, what's your why? Like, what do you want to talk about in this session? And then what are the themes? The other thing, it takes such discipline from 
the client to listen because the salespeople, Mount Franklin in this case, and we love Mount Franklin, they're not paying for the roundtable or this uh, or this <laughs> podcast, but uh, he's, he's hoping. They want to get certain objectives out of it. What we work very hard to help them understand, and it's the same as a sponsor at a conference, is that the magic isn't just turning the proverbial fire hose of information on. The magic is taking your audience on a journey and especially in a roundtable, understanding where they're at. Yep. Agreed. You'd both you know. Break that down and then you've, got to, you've also got to drive the outcome. So it goes back to that why of like why are we doing this but what outcomes do we need? And then as the facilitator, correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly from my experience is then about how you drive those outcomes out because otherwise what's the point? 100%. In the events world, we're so lucky that we work in a diverse industry there's a bit of everything there and I love that. I know Brad does too. Have you ever done anything a bit outside the square? I hosted a comedy gig once for a guy, Rob McHugh, uh, a wonderful comedian. And as the MC, it's your role to link the speakers together. And I never swear on stage ever. I think I've dropped the S-bomb once at an, at an event uh, and you're, no, you're allowed to swear here if you want to let. If you want to get yeah, something off your chest, this is the platform. I feel to do like uh, my kids could be listening, but don't they hear me swear enough? At home. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, uh, I hosted this comedy event, and and I remember the comedian before me was talking about the most hilarious but abhorrent content, right? And and I just took it and ran with it. And half the audience, this was split by gender, and I'll let the listeners decide who. Half the audience was rolling on the floor in hysterics. The other half was just horrified. And you're quite perceptive as an MC. So I can see this, right? And I'm like, this is just not going well here, like for half of it. Because as, as an MC, I'm like, I'm, I shouldn't be saying these sort of things. But it was good and I just, as we spoke about in terms of humour, I just went with the flow. And then I thought, all right, it's time to pull the ejector seat. So as soon as I could, I weaved in, and please welcome your next speaker, and then just threw to them, and I was like legging it off stage. So that's one thing that's been left field in terms of in terms of events. Probably another of the sporting events where you do like an Ironman or something. I hosted Ironman on the uh, oh, wow. Port Macquarie. Yeah. That was that was with Pete Murray and Mike Rabbit from Channel Nine, and Pete Murray's a, a, an Ironman himself. Epic. Iconic voice. Epic. Yeah. Epic. Bucket list. Oh, hardcore! Right, like that was. I read the book actually. Mike Riley's The Voice of Iron Man. Yes. He's like, you are an Iron Man. Recently retired. There's an opportunity for you, mate. Yeah. So, well, I think his son took over. That's the problem. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Pete stepped into those shoes as well. Yeah, so did Pete Murray. Absolute champions, right? Absolute champions. But I, so I'd read his book and and at that event I was in transition and then I moved somewhere else and, and, and my producer called me and he goes, hey, look, like Pete's on the main stage. He's got to go to the toilet. Do you mind coming? And that's where you get to call people over. And bestowing you are an Iron Man on someone, that's like – that's very special, right? And I was pumped. So I legged it to the stage. And like, I only got to do it for three people, but I lost my marbles, man. I was like, you are an Iron Man. Like I'm losing my absolute bananas on stage, right? The crowd's going bonkers. It was just epic. And then I didn't want to get off stage because I had to, Pete came back and I had to go. But I got to cruise in three people. It shows how much I know about Iron Man because I thought, thought you meant the singer-songwriter Pete Murray. Um, <laughs> no. talking about that, but I'll – Iron Man, Chotha, mate. And so for, for the uninitiated and for the uneducated, like that, that sentence is – is, is so iconic in that sport and there is a number of people that literally do an Ironman to physically have those words announced to them as they cross the finish line somewhere between the 9-hour and 18-hour mark oh if they've been out there. So, yeah. um, That's impressive. I like yeah, it. Every person gets called across. It's quite impressive. It's hurt locker material, right? Yeah. It, and it, it, I think the cutoff's 18 or 17 18, hours. Yeah, yeah 17 or 18 yeah. hours and 
So these people have, you know, they've done a, a I think it's a 3.8K swim. They've done 180 Ks on the bike. And then once they've done that, they go run a marathon. Yep. And so it's proper hurt locker material. It really is. And there was three and a half thousand athletes. There's a half and a full and just being in that zone. And I'm quite an energetic individual, as you can probably, as you probably get, gather, just sensing the energy around. And it's all these people just pushing themselves farther, further than they've ever been pushed before. Yep. And I think that's special d- about running events. I've done two. And the, where you are at at that mark of sort of crossing that finish line, the end of that marathon, regardless of your time, you are in like another land, like your brain's in a different space, your body's in a different space. And so, and you've generally been in a very, like out on a course and it's quiet and you're by yourself, you're in your own headspace and then you come into this, you know, the finish line area and it's just pumping. There's music going, all the announcements are going and so forth. So it's, it's like a whole adrenaline rush um, to get to that point. So it's all about experience at the end of the day. And in, so. in that scenario, achievement too, oh, with, with everyone like yourself, Brad, who's done a couple tears, and emotions, who's, who's being a part of this achievement yep. with everyone, yeah, finishing yep. up. Yeah, it's just an, another way of crafting an event and they've done such a good job of it and and know the voice of it, that MC, is such an integral role of being able to communicate what's happening on that day because at the end of the day, like for a spectator, it's a pretty boring event, right? There's people just running you know, and cycling all over the place and it's very spread out and the link to your point and the person who's communicating exactly what's happening is like linking a speaker together, you're linking an event together, um, uh, is is integral to how it comes across to the public uh, and also to the athlete. The athlete's uh, an interesting word there and I've, I've never done an Ironman. I've done a couple of halves and plenty of triathlons, like dozens and dozens. And in that finish shoot, there's this moment of of euphoria and Brad, I'd love your thoughts and you spoke about it. You, you feel like you could run forever. You've just burnt yourself out for 13 hours but for those 100 metres, there's this feeling, it's, it's hard to explain it, unless you've done it. Yeah, it is hard to explain it. It's like you've got all that energy again that you never had, you know, a kilometre before you virtually on your knees and, I mean, there's epic footage of it on YouTube of literally people crawling across the finish line with nothing left in the tank but it's it's that presence it's it's what's been created it's the atmosphere that's been created at that event that literally drags you across that line and there's every emotion under the sun there's from people cheering to people falling over to people crying to mm-hmm. you know the hugs the loved ones you know to the unknown and the bonds that you make through that event um it's it's quite a special experience and an achievement, as I said before in, in any, yeah. any event like that it's a huge one so now nah, kudos to both of you I mean I'd Run up the stairs and was buggered. So, uh, <laughs> all right, that's enough about Ivan. Just one more thing on on that. And you speak about the athletes, and I think our role as event professionals, and and the role I take as an MC, and I, I mentioned before, I've got an MBA, I've studied business, I run my own business, we all run our own businesses. Events, when you break them down, there's a lot of complexity, but it's really simple to do yes. a good job. Keep your sponsors happy, keep your delegates happy, and in this case, in Ironman, keep the athletes happy. And if you do that well you have a recipe for success. And that's the approach I take to events. And most of my clients see that. And back to your question before around latitude, when they understand that I I am truly vested, truly, truly, truly vested in the success of their event, not just for this event, but the long-term future of it. Because when I quote a client, I'm not quoting them for an event. I mean, clearly the investment covers the event, the prep work and the bespoke MC run sheet, the meetings with the clients, debriefs, event site visits and so on, and of course, hosting the event. But I know that when I do an amazing job, I'll have this client for the next decade. So it's not a $2 event. It's a $20 event over the next 10 years. Hey, you're um you're very active on LinkedIn. Um is there a strategy behind that or is it an organic process for you, you know, based on result? How did all that sort of start to come to fruition? 
when I let's step back to May 2018, I've had the epiphany, the the, the yeah. enlightening, <laughs> if you want to call it, and it really was right. It was literally this is it. I decided right. Let me go on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, because a lot of the people in my network, and I got a lot of mates who are wedding MCs, they were quite heavy on the Facebooks, the Instas of the world, and the Twitters. What I quickly began to realize is my business is very B to C, very B to B. So I'm selling my business to other businesses, and those businesses are companies who produce events or companies that are holding their own events, an awards night or, or a conference or a, an association. Most of those people. And Gary V, who I don't know, will probably frown upon this. But most of those people do most of their work on LinkedIn. And what I found is that the quality of business, and I was putting similar content, which might have been a mistake on me, so please don't shoot me down in the comments. But I was putting similar content on those four platforms. And I just found that the most results I was getting was from LinkedIn. And so over a period of time, I I pivoted away from the other platforms. And I know there's probably some weakness in there. And there's definitely some work for me to get back on those. But back to LinkedIn, I realized that there was real power in that platform for me. Plus the likes of connecting with an Andrew Klein, as I touched upon before, and connecting with my clients, it was just so prominent that I just started to really invest a lot of time connecting with people on LinkedIn. And I think one of the mistakes most people make on LinkedIn is they, A, there's a few. One, they ping people connections and then try and sell to them straight away. Now, for those old enough to know that that's just like going for home base on the first day. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. It's, it's horrible, isn't oh, it? Absolutely horrible. You can't, you, you can't do that. The second thing is it's like any friendship. It's like a relationship. It needs work. When I'm coaching people on, and this is a bit of a sidetrack, but it's really relevant. When I'm coaching people on communications and networking, you need to be genuinely interested in what the person is saying. If we're networking, we could be talking about anything, but there's probably something you've got to say which can help me be a better person. Even if you're speaking about something that I totally don't connect with, if I listen with the true intent to understand as opposed to just trying to respond, there's something I could learn. And that's the same as LinkedIn. If you're truly interested and passionate about what people are putting out and celebrate their successes and comment and like on their posts just to be interactive, then one day then when they need you, they'll call you back. The amount of work I've got from when people, I'll comment on a post, hey, man, great luck with the event, have an awesome event, bang, the phone rings, mate, we need an MC, can you come work for us? And as soon as I do that first event and they see the product for real, like I'm in, I'm in. So to the LinkedIn question, the power is just extraordinary. I truly believe I've only got, call it 4,500 connections. However, when I look through that list, most of those people I've done a roundtable with or I've met at an event and I, I, I have a relationship with. And so therefore, if I ping them a note, it's not out of the blue because they've been active, I've been active. Hey, man, great post. And it's funny because sometimes you connect with someone so much on LinkedIn, the same as you and I, Buzz. Like we were on LinkedIn for, for years before we met in person. You feel like you know them and then you meet them for yeah. the first time. I was like, is this the first time we've met? I don't really know. So I work it hard, but I value my connections and I value what they've got to say. And I'm sure they feel the same about me and it just works, right? I love it. I agree. Uh, you know, in the, the context that LinkedIn is such a, a strong platform, especially in the professional world, people I feel um, listen a bit more to what the post is. You know what I mean? The actual content and what you're putting out there, mm-hmm. as opposed to Instagram. And I mean, look, Instagram's great in in some ways, especially from an aesthetic. But I guess that's not really your jam, right? Like LinkedIn is more you telling a story, and and I did notice that you don't really do a lot on Instagram. And is that more? a trial and error or you just never went down that path or? I spoke to my coach about this the other day in that it's funny when you're self-employed, you 
by nature, it's like economic supply and demand. Supply and demand, the demand curve and the supply curve will always land on the equilibrium price. It's just the way market works, right? It's the invisible hand. I found myself always just doing what works best. And if it was inefficient or not producing results, and again, that could have been through my own inability to put proper content out or, or manage it in the right way. But the profiles which seem to work just tended to work best for me. And my mates, I've got some great wedding MC friends, and they're very heavy on Insta because that's where most of their clients are. Mm. That's where they're going to get their leads from. People see someone else's wedding on Insta and then go, oh, I need that. But think about weddings versus corporate events. They're totally different, right? Because I touched before on the $2 example. I do a job for this client. I've got that client for the next 10 years. Most people, and I use the term most loosely here, don't get married every year. And so, <laughs> and so the wedding tends to be a one-off, whereas my clients, it's more of a long-term relationship. And it was just it was just different. So back to your question, it could have been me, but I sort of found something that worked really well, was generating a lot of work. The other awkward thing for Luke Hannon, sorry to talk in the third person, I'm a business of one. I've got a very unique skill set, which gets me to the position that I'm in. And that's very hard to outsource to other people. And so to scale this business is very difficult. So I also need to be very careful around what am I doing with my time? And if it doesn't seem to be working, I'll put extra effort in if I can see value. But if it's not, I sort of pull the ripcord on it. And you'd notice that with Insta when you look and Luke Hannon MC's the handle, but there's some posts on there and I'm sort of active, but nowhere near as active as I am on LinkedIn because that's where most of my connections are. And I'm connected to the most of them on LinkedIn, whereas mm. I'm not on Insta. So, From your experience and knowledge in business, what is one area you believe the event industry should improve in the way that we do things? I would say much like working at a large financial institution, institution. We spoke about Westpac. Now, Westpac's Australia's oldest company. It's a fantastic company. It's Australia's, I don't know how big it's by mark cap, but it'd be top five, right? And there's a lot of shareholders and most Australians would have shares in Westpac in their super. The reason I'm prefacing the conversation with that is Westpac needs to be very careful with the strategic decisions they make because of the vast number of stakeholders that rely upon the success of their organisation. So they can't take too many risks, which means they can't be as agile as they probably want to because if it doesn't work, they're going to cost Australians money and that's a real problem. 100%. I feel that what that does then, it gets you stuck. Stuck isn't the right word. It makes it highly inelastic to change and I think I see a lot of events where they could really do with just being turned on its head and mixing it up totally, totally and trying new things and taking a punt. And I fundamentally believe there's so many events out there where if they just had the courage to say, if we were starting from scratch, how would we do this? What would we do differently? And it doesn't mean change everything at once, but what it does mean is take a Kaizen, take a continuous improvement theory approach to what it is that you do and test and learn. One thing banking and finance does amazingly well is tests things, measures the performance of it with data and with results, and then either implements it or doesn't. I think with events, quite often what happens is we're so short on time, we don't have the chance to innovate as much as we'd like to because most of us are short on people, especially after COVID, right? And you can probably talk more about this. So many people that knew so much about events had to leave because yeah. they had to put food on the table and it's so hard to get them back. Yeah, so they haven't come back. Yeah. That's a problem. The IP that's been lost in our industry uh, across the country is huge but and probably the world really. So mm. I agree with you. So I think innovation's one. Challenge, challenge yourself to try different things. And that could be as simple as a totally different format. It could be different start times. It could be different speaker formats. So maybe instead of 
keynotes, let's do panel discussions instead of talking at the audience. How do we pivot it to talking with them? Instead of doing what we've always done, how do we innovate? So I will say, although Westpac, as we've just mentioned, it's sometimes hard for them to innovate, within banking and finance, they do this micro innovation really, 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 really well. And I think that's something that events could do more of. Yeah, it's interesting because particularly corporate events, um, I think there's the innovation comes from the industry, no problems. And I think the ideas are there. Sometimes it's actually the client support and the belief in wanting to do the change. Mm -hmm. And some of that may be as a result of how they operate their business day in, day out. You just make the point of like don't want to take the risk and so forth because we just don't do that. We're a bit more risk adverse. And so even if the event industry professional producer, whoever that is, puts the idea forward – it gets shut down. So the challenge is there how you then work with your client to then be able to say manage or massage things over or put multiple things on the table to maybe just get one outcome or yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's that's an ongoing battle I think we'll always, as a career, particularly in the creative space, we'll always face. Um, you've mentioned a bunch of cities already that you've worked in, in the, during this interview, Singapore, Brisbane, or you're here in Melbourne and you live in Sydney. Do you find many differences in the approach from the event producer and how events are managed and delivered or is it much of a muchness? Southeast Asia tends to be a bit different to Australia. Australia is relatively aligned from from what I see, but I do work with a lot of the same producers as well. Brisbane versus Sydney, I'd say that Australia is pretty similar. Government, corporate, totally different. So working in government events versus working in corporate events, they are totally different. And it's not better or worse. There's just differences in what people can say, what people can't say. Mm. The information's also quite different as well in terms of, I mean, you've got Department of Defence and, and so on up on stage. Like there's a lot at stake there, right? Because they've got information that's legitimately classified, right? So I think that can be different. The, 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 what I see between Southeast Asia and, and Australia, Southeast Asia tends to be a bit more prepared if I can use that like they really really do the legwork in prep from from what I've seen they also like a little bit more structure around conversations when I moderate a panel discussion I'm happy to have a chat to a panelist with half a dozen questions and just follow the flow knowing that I'm acutely aware of the themes of the conference and I know what the producer would like to have in terms of information to the audience and so in the back of my mind is that when 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 moderating the conversation but I don't need too much structure. However, they tend to be a bit more structured. But that's just my experience. And again, I haven't hosted billions of events and I'm sure many people have different ideas, but there's a few things that stick out. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised by that really. I mean, I do. I mean, we don't do a lot of conferences per se, so we see quite a few differences state by state in the country. But what you're talking about with Southeast Asia, I, I can see that and maybe it's to control the narrative a little bit to some extent. Yeah, and some of it's cultural yeah, as well. Yeah. You know, the, just the way they live their lives are different. So, yeah. again, you have to adapt. Oh, ad- adaptation is the key. And it's not better or worse. I mean, I used no. to say this when I left Citibank. I did 10 years and one day at, C- <laughs> at Citibank and then moved to Westpac. And they're just very different organisations. One is a US bank ran out of Southeast Asia. The other is one of Australia's oldest and, and most fabulous places to work. And I loved every day of my eight and a half years. But they are both very different, very, very different organisations. And that's the same with events. No two events... No two geographies are the same. The event team's always different and they've always got different objectives and I think you just need to keep an open mind. So as a person that continues to evolve and is passionate about development in general, how do you continue to develop and improve yourself? There's a few things there. Debriefing is a massive one. Humility is another 
And there's a great key, there's a great uh, a great keynote. Walter Bond, FFA, if you search that up at the FFA convention, Walter Bond speaks about this. And what he says is Michael Jordan knew he was a great player. Kobe Bryant knew he was a great player. I know I'm a great MC, but I've never arrived. I'm always learning. I'm always open to new ideas. I'm always open to trying things. And I'm always looking critically. And I mean, most of you listeners in events, like it's a high pressure job. The negative self-talk I give myself after an event, like I'll have the most fabulous three days but I'll have done something trivial that no one recognized and I'll be beating myself up so bad about it, like just an absolute clown. You wouldn't let anyone else talk to you like that, but the (laughs) negative self-talk you give yourself is something. So I think the first thing is, number one, if you're good at something, it's okay to be confident. Don't ever think you've arrived, but because then you cross that line between confidence and arrogance and that's a bad, bad place to be. So I'm always learning. And you learn, back to your question, through debriefing what went well. There's a great question that Brian Hartzell would ask for feedback. And he'd never say, do you have any feedback for me? Because you generally get a no. But I'd invite you, and as does Brian in his book, The Leadership Staff, say, what have you seen me do or not do that you thought I could have done better? And asking that separates the behavior from the person. And then you're more likely to get, well, when this happened, this is kind of the approach. Yeah, cool. That's interesting. So to your continuous improvement question, number one, it's okay to be confident that you're good at something. Because so many people in events do so much great work, but they're scared to say, I'm good at what I do. I would agree with that. Definitely. And I think further to that, Luke, maybe this is a question for you even, Brad. Um, Do you think it's sometimes because we work for someone, we're sometimes too scared to be as natural as we would normally be because we're working on behalf of the client or? I think the, I mean, there's, probably multiple different ways you could answer that question. But I think one of the key points around there is is our personalities. Yeah. And the personalities of particularly the producer and the event manager are very A-type. They're very perfectionist driven. And so I think we're very critical on ourselves. So even when we do do a good job, to your point, Luke, it's like I could have done that a little bit better mm. or how can I improve it next time? So I'm never – extremely confident going, yeah, I'm done here. I've got this sorted. Like you're never 100% sorted. And I think that's important, particularly if you're in a creative role as well, that you need to think like that because otherwise you won't continue to improve. Agree. Now, crazy stories, do you have any? Ooh. I've had the lights go out at an event. I've had a speaker fall through stage. Funny story on the stage. This is what we want to hear. Here we go. Funny story on the stage one. So I caught up with Andrew Klein and we speak a bit and there's another great MC, Darren Eisenberg. And and so – Darren told Andrew the story that one day a speaker fell through the stage. And, and of course, this is the thing in events, right? Like if something happens, everyone in the audience generally knows. Like if something <laughs> like right. happens, there's no point trying to hide behind nah. You've got to address the elephant in the room, right? Like it's obvious someone's just fallen over, that the, the lectern's fallen off stage, like something's gone wrong. As the MC, it's your role to, to, to address the elephant in the room, make sure everything's okay and then move on. So Darren, it happened to Darren and, and his story was that and I'm paraphrasing here and sorry, Darren, but he, he, he jumped up on stage and said, ladies and gentlemen, it's okay. It's just a stage they're going through, right? <laughs> <laughs> to to, to okay, address it's it. It's, it's not bad, right? And so as soon as Andrew told me that, I was like, right, I'm locking that bad boy in the yeah. memory bank. And so it happened to me in Sydney and, and hot tip for all the event profs out there. Whenever you put those temporary stages together, you have to gaffer tape the gaps between them because if you don't, someone's high heels. Straight through the crack. Straight through. Mm. And that's what happened, right? And so this, this speaker, a lady, and she would have been, I'm going to say 6'6". Six, six. And so... I hear this massive thud and I look up and clearly as an MC, I'm always taking notes. I'm in the front row. I hear this thud. She's fallen into a seat. So I'm straight on stage because that's a serious problem. There's other things that have gone wrong we'll talk about in a minute where you, you wait and see if they can sort it out on their own. At this point, it's clear I need to get on stage now. 
And so, and she's like, no, no, I'm okay. Cause I thought she might've passed out or something. Right. Yeah. And so her shoe had just gone through the gap literally all the way through. So kind of gone through the stage and she'd fallen into a seat for a panel that was next. Thank God. Otherwise <sighs> she would have gone off the back. So I shoehorned her shoe out and then I'm like, don't worry, ladies and gentlemen, you know, it's just a stage they're going, it's just a stage she's going through. And as soon as I sat back down, I was straight on the phone to Andrew. I'm like, mate, you wouldn't believe what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to say this. So that's one. Um, communications coaching, right? Let's do a bit of that. Don't ever hold on to the lectern ever <laughs> because a lot of the temporary lecterns, the ones that are on wheels, no one puts the brakes on and they'll roll straight, straight off stage. Off stage. So did I've, you see that? I really hope you did. Did you see someone? I've seen it roll forward but not go off stage. Okay. But I've had another speaker whose shoe got stuck under the, under, the, under, the, under the lectern and so this was one time where I knew what had gone wrong. This individual on stage had known what has gone wrong but none of the audience, audience knew. The idea. audience had no idea. So at this point I'm like, right. All right, let's just see what happens here, right? Because if I jump on stage, everyone knows something's wrong. So I'm waiting and, and the, it was the funniest thing ever because you can imagine this person's now holding the lectern. Like imagine this, a speaker on stage, one foot stuck under the lectern, the other not, and not an MCEC, ICC lectern, which are massive. This is one of those portable ones. So they're on stage and I can see them trying to get their foot free and still trying to do their intro and click through their slides and stuff. Eventually after, I'm going to say it was probably – 10 seconds, right? But it felt like a lifetime and I'm sure it was for the speaker. That's a long time though. Yeah, it's ages to have your yeah. shoe stuck under. The the shoe came free and on they went. And the funny thing is I hosted this individual at a conference like four years later. And they're like, do you remember? And I'm like, absolutely. Like, how could I forget? <laughs> so the point is plenty goes wrong at events, yeah. Hey, you spoke a bit before about um, the volume of places you've worked and, you know, mm-hmm. the travel that comes with that. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a nice perk that we have in, in this industry in some ways. You also have a family at home um, and I know you love flying and I know you love your planes, but how do you manage the balance of living out of a suitcase, you know, the family and what do you do for some downtime? I I love flying. Let me just say that. I love, I love flying. If I wasn't an MC, I'd be a pilot. Like I did a, I did a gig with Brad Bush who might be listening. He's a size rocket engineer, rocket scientist, aeronautical engineer. We just spoke about planes for ages. So I love flying. Now without out of the way, how do I balance the family the family uh, work thing? I have three kids, Scarlett's 11, Patrick's 10 and Lara is 7 and my wonderful wife, Pavla, uh, Pavla from the Czech Republic, if you're wondering. It's like Paula with a V. And so we, when I was working full-time pre-COVID, I'd be in the office five days a week, leave home at, let's call it 7, get home at 6.30. As an event prof, I'm either home or I'm away and it's very binary. So what I've found is, A, I'm supremely confident in the amount of work I would like to do. There are, there are a lot of speakers, and, and this is a message to anyone listening who wants to be a keynote speaker. You hear this million-dollar speaker thing thrown around a bit. Unless you are the best, you know, and there are amazing keynote speakers out there. I had Michael McQueen on stage recently. Like there's some gun speakers who have been doing it for a long time and are experienced enough to know what works. You need to be very careful around trying to do everything at once because you will burn out big time. So I'm confident how much I need to do and how much I don't need to do. Clearly, it would be great to do more. However, at the same time, I know that with three kids, they're not going to get that time back. Now, back to your question, in banking, and again, 22 years, I saw so many senior leaders, especially at City. And City, we worked hard, we played hard, but we worked real hard as well. And I saw so many senior leaders that didn't see their kids grow up. And let's think about that for a moment. And my life changed in 2012 when in 2012, I was a management associate at Citibank. So I was like the grad program that had thousands of applicants. God knows why they chose me, but they chose me and seven other people. 
during that time in 2012 and 2013 when I was in the MA program, my mum lost the fight with ovarian cancer. Two kids were born, Scarlett in 2012, Patrick in 2013. And it was at that point that I realised I didn't want to be a bank CEO. And I think that kind of changed my perspective. For me, those things then shaped my approach to to life. And I left City not long after that. And again, City, the University of Banking, loved every minute there, great place to work. But then I went to Westpac because it was a bit more balanced in terms of the approach. Now, I take that approach to events. I know how much I can do. I know how much I can't do. I'm clearly not turning work away. I could always do with more. But I don't aspire to be away for so long. So back to the binary thing. When I'm there, I am there. And that's really important if you're listening. When you're with your family, be with them. Be present. The emails can wait. Now, if my phone rings with a client, I'll jump and, and the kids know that. The kids know dad's phone is the catalyst for him to earn money, not to surf the internet. And so I use it for that. But I try and be really present when I'm with them because when I'm away, I am gone. Now, I'll still FaceTime them and stuff like that when I can from events. But that's that's the first answer to your question in terms of the balance around when I'm there, I'm there. And I'm supremely confident I'm there. And when I'm away, well, I'm gone, right? I 100% agree. I mean, it's like, look at myself in the mirror in some ways. So, uh, and we have all been there, you know, those those moments. You know, mine came in 2018, you know, when I picked up my daughter from kindergarten and, you know, I can't remember doing that. The next thing I did is wake up in a hospital and she'd managed to call my wife and get me an ambulance to get to a hospital. Like you kind of go, I don't need this. It's a tipping point. Yeah. yeah, you do. You find those moments where you go, no. Nah. And then like it's bringing tears to my eyes thinking about it now because I can physically remember that moment and I'll never, ever go back there. So it doesn't mean I don't want to work. I want to work. I want Absolutely. to do as much as I possibly can, but um, you do, there's more important things. 100%, right? And I can see the I can see the emotion. It's heartwarming because this is a stressful industry. Let's not beat behind the bush. Like events have and, – and I'm lucky as an MC, right? Like I'd, mm. I, I do a lot of prep work, but I can do that in my garage. I've seen, the, I've, I've seen once or twice the work when I did some coaching with IBM, watching the teams bump in and then bump out at the ICC – Mate, there's so much that happens before MC Luke Hannon rocks up the night before, does his thing and then goes home at four o'clock. You know, what you guys do is even more mm. high stress than that. So balance is yeah. so important. I think it's great that you're aware of that. I mean, there's so yeah. many people that we, we we work with that just aren't aware of it or mm. take it for granted or just don't care. I had an MC. Tell me if you've ever done this. I had one MC who when he was done, he jumped in with us and was packing the chairs, packing the tables, packing the cages, he was doing all that. And I hadn't had that very often um, and I, I won't mention who it is but, uh, yeah, he was – Impressive. I, can I mention who it was? Yeah. Dill, Dylan Buckley. Oh, oh legend. Yeah. There you go. Ro- roll the sleeves up and away you went. Yeah. Have you done that before? At, at most of the sporting events I do with Max Adventure, I'm helping those guys pack up. And we – when it's wrapped up, absolutely we're cleaning up. I'm packing all my microphone and stuff like that away. Now sometimes at, at a more larger corporate event – you know, the, the, the venue comes in at a, at a hotel and they sort out all that stuff out. But I'm having a chat to the AV guys, debriefing, making sure they've got all their microphones and clickers and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to. And I'm very fortunate as an MC, right? As an MC or a professional speaker, and they're two different things, but as an MC, I get a round of applause. But behind me, one person, there are a dozen people working rego, 50 wait staff, 60 people at the hotel that have sent up the event, the team that set up the website, the photographer, the cameraman, the AV guys, right? There are so many people, so many people in events that go without that kind of praise. So I feel so fortunate as someone that gets to stand on stage and get an absolute standing ovation or a round of applause at the end of the day because most people know you've done a good job, you've given them something they've never seen before and therefore they're really appreciative. But only I get that as the MC. So I believe it's important to pay it forward and make sure that 
the other people get recognition, whether it's like, ladies and gentlemen, if you rave for the weight stuff at the venue, round of applause, please. Like, just give them a little bit of appreciation. And to your point, Buzz, make sure that they feel valued. And if that's, can I help you guys with anything? Here's your microphones back. Here's your clickers. Is there anything else you need help with? Because it's thankless for a lot of those people. I mean, they get paid, but you guys would know behind the scenes, right? The experience I get as a, as a, as a professional on stage is totally different to what 99.9% of the other event profs get. They don't get that. So, yeah. 100%. What does the future look like for Luke Hannon? Wow. David Coulthard said once, uh, and I can't do a Scottish accent very well, but he got asked that question. He's like a... He's like, you know, uh, you know, if one drivers have got big balls, unfortunately, <laughs> mine aren't crystals. So I can't <laughs> tell you. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm launching a an online public speaking masterclass with over a hundred little lessons that people can go through in their own time. Love it. So that's one thing I'm you, working you're, on. You're in the presence of someone who's very, uh-huh. very, uh, very talented at this. Right up my alley. Yeah. There you go. That's right. We'll take that off here. We'll talk about that later. Yep. Yeah, that, that, yep. was a, that was a casual <laughs> little uh, drop. drop. <laughs> there you go. Event, eventsmasterclass.com. Yeah. Right? yeah. Now I have a speaking course in uh, how long have you got? A couple of months? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. So what's next was the question. I'll be doing that. So a lot of time with the family, back to your point, and then probably, you know, day hours after school drop-offs will be public speaking, but it's all about growth, innovation and uh, and online training. So I think there's some cool stuff there. Love it. Righto, we're into the hard-hitting questions now. If you think all that was hard, wait till you see what's coming next. Buzzers, rapid-fire questions. Righto, okay. mate, hit him up. Let's do this. All right, what's the most difficult job you've taken on? Oh, difficult job. Oh, this is supposed to be rapid fire. I used to work at Maccas. I used to deliver papers. I mean, is this conference emceeing or is this just Whatever. life in general? Just life in general, yeah. I'm going to say, oh, man, there's so many. Ooh, probably cleaning at McDonald's is a tough one, but that taught me the most. So I'm sure we'll come up with another one, but keep going and we'll come back to that one. All difficult right. job. Favourite restaurant in Sydney? To moderate a roundtable discussion at, no, no, just for I'm going to say Hubert, Hubert's a ripper. French restaurant to eat at, oh, meat and wine company because I love a good steak. Oh yeah, that is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, have you ever sworn at an event that maybe you shouldn't have? You know, the demographic probably wasn't the right once. One, I think you said. Yeah, yeah I dropped it. I, I did swear once at an event when no one was listening, and of course there was that abhorrent. Oh, I wasn't swearing when I did that comedy gig, but I have I have sworn only ever once in over four hundred events, and I always regret it because you just never should swear. In my role. I was going to say, yeah. If it's any yeah. consolation, it was a round table, not a, um, not a conference. So I wasn't on the microphone. The table was going gangbusters. It was casual conversation and I, and I swore once, but yeah. All right. So banker, corporate MC, are you much of a handyman at home? Oh, mate, absolutely. My wife hates this, right? Because I wear work boots and p- pants covered in paint around the house. And yeah, absolutely. So wow. I've renovated our kitchen, bathrooms, my studio. Yeah, very I, good. I, I, I don't know that I go right on the tools. Doesn't matter. You're giving it a crack. But I, yeah, I'm giving it a crack. And there's nothing you can't learn on the internet, right? Like yeah, oh, so, 100 YouTube like, tutorial on something like that. YouTube so. tutorial, 100. Yeah. Yeah. Now, who's your favourite MC? Andrew Klein. Yep. And what's uh, a dream job that you'd like to be offered? Oh, I would love to do the Olympics. I think that's a big one. I, I, somewhere where there's just the bigger the crowd, the better. Like yep. put me – or you know the other one I want to do? Let's get ready to rumble. Oh, wow. Yeah, UFC. I'd love to do – yeah, 100%. Like I'd, I'd love to be down there in that. So I reckon that's really cool. But I think for some reason I just gravitate towards Olympiad, like 
big, big events where you're down on stage, or down on on the on the floor, just quick interviews with the speakers, with the, with the athletes rather. Yeah, I think any I particular sport. I'd love to. <laughs> oh. No, no, I don't think so. I think I can gravitate to all. It's funny, the first gig I did after the epiphany, I was at the MS Mega Swim in 2018 at Olympic Park. And another big listening, big, big, big lesson for the listeners, that's just I combined lesson and listener in that word. That's what MCs do. They just make up new words. Another big lesson for the listeners is you've got to go with your instincts. If your instinct says this is the right thing to do, 99% of the time you cannot go wrong. And if you do go wrong, you're like, well, I thought it was the right thing to do at the time and, uh, and off we go. Within reason. I was at, I was at uh, my wife was doing the mega swim. So we're at Sydney Olympic Park and, and I can see there's a table and I can see the microphone on the table. And at this point I've decided like this is what I want to do. But this is like June 2018 I'm going to say, right? So an instinct is like go and talk to the event organiser, go and talk to the event organiser, go and talk to the event organiser. Like over and over in my head it's like you have to go and talk to this person otherwise you're going to regret it, Right. And so eventually I, I get up the, the courage to go over there, right, and say, hey, you know, look, Hannah's my name. I notice there's a mic there. Look, it's 7 o'clock at night. You know, these people are swimming for 24 hours, right? It's yep. the MS Mega Swim. Uh, how about it? You know, like uh, let me uh, let me do some work for you. So two seconds later I've got a T-shirt and I'm on the mic. And, mate, the acoustics within the Sydney Aquatic Centre was epic, right? There's nothing <laughs> better than hearing the sound of your own voice, for me at least anyway, echoing throughout a massive stadium. And it was just it was just unbelievable. It was so so cool. And and my wife's horrified because she's doing freestyle in the pool. Like, taste to take a breath, and there's me, like with a with a, a MS shirt on and the microphone, just letting it rip. So so the point there is you got to go with your gut. If your gut says this is the right thing to do, don't take no for an answer and just get after it, and you'll be fine. But back to your question, I'd have to say I'd have to say the the Olympics or the Formula One. I'd love to be a Formula oh, yeah. One commentator because I love F one. But I just the the work life balance thing. Oh yeah, Go I couldn't on. I couldn't do that without I, I couldn't spend that time watching. Nothing's worth more to me than watching my kids grow up because so many people miss that in banking. And I just I mean I still lie in bed with my son every night and have a lie down. He's ten years old. We have a little lie down. Sorry, Patrick. Um, <laughs> but it's cute. It's our thing because one day he's going to go get lost, Dad. <laughs> you know, he's going to grow out of it, right? So yeah. you you got to make make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. Oh, so very good. Yeah. I, and I'm all done. That's uh, but we do have one more. Bro. One more. A tradition we've started this season on an event for life, uh, and that is we've asked the previous guest to leave the next guest a question without knowing who they are. So today's question to you, who has been your biggest mentor and why? Andy Fell, my coach, closely followed by Andrew Klein. Andrew in terms of – well, they're both Andrew. So Andrew Klein, the MC, and Andy Fell, my coach. Andy Fell for – being the wind underneath my wings that helped me to sort of new heights. And what I mean by that is he's the one that challenges challenges me to do more, unshackles the realm of possibility. He's kind of that positive voice in the back of your mind that's like, do it, do it. One of his big things is decide, commit, go. Because so often in life we decide I'm going to do this. Yeah, 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 I'm going to do it, 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 but you never do. You just got to go. And unshackling yourself to be the best person you can be. And again, he really does help people to sort a new height. It's got a great book as well called The Rocking Chair Test. So check that one out. It's an absolute ripper. And Andy Fells, his name. And Andrew Klein, just for the the warmth, the openness, the and I suspect your listeners can relate. We've all met someone who just shares and is just not threatened. So many times you meet a leader that doesn't want to tell you what you, they know because they're so afraid you're going to overtake them. Don't be that person. Your best, your best, and when I was a leader at the bank, 
Your best results are when the people that work for you ascend to heights that you could have never imagined. There is no better reflection upon you than being the person that helps people to grow. And Andrew's approach, Andrew Klein, would, 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 was just so open and so honest and so warming around even like because as an MC, how much do you charge for your services? I don't know. Where do you start, right? And I, and I spoke to Andrew about that. He goes, mate, you, you, you're leaving so much value on the table. Here's where I'm at. Here's the journey I was on. Think about this. Think about that. He was just so good. So in relation to your question, the biggest influences, Andy Fell, my coach, uh, and Andrew Klein, the, the legendary MC. Beautiful. Good answer. There you go. Well, what a great way to finish an amazing uh, conversation. Mate, thank you very much for your time. Um, we greatly appreciate it. You are a busy man uh, and and hugely popular, but uh, the fact that you could come down here into the studio uh, in amongst your travels, uh, it is greatly appreciated and uh, an amazing insight into an incredible life that you've led so far uh, and we wish you all the best for the future. Cheers. cheers. Enjoy Melbourne while you're here. Yeah, thanks, Buzz. Off to the gym. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of An Eventful Life. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. It makes a huge difference to us. And don't forget you can also find us on our new YouTube channel. This show is for you, our listeners. Our aim is to bring you the most in-depth conversations and life experiences from the event industry. So if you have any feedback, suggestions on guests you would like us to interview on the show, please reach out to us through our social media channels. I'm Brad. And I'm Shane. See you next time on An Event for Life.